Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. Apologies, y'all. I'd hoped to get this done Monday night. A little bit of a mix-up and whatnot here. So, nonetheless, getting going on our Week in IndyCar. All the great questions you sent in here starting at about 5.53 p.m. on Tuesday. We're going to have Devlin Francesco. Andretti Autosports new signing final driver of their full-time roster for 2022. Devlin will be joining me tomorrow, Wednesday, probably when you're listening to this. Talk about his journey to IndyCar and whatnot. So hopefully you will uh, send in some questions for that. It's a little bit light, to be honest. Haven't gotten a lot of questions, but I'm hoping to get a few more. Say a big thank you as always, not only to you for the great stuff you send in that powers our show, but also to our friends at Cooper Tires. There's three drivers from the 2021 Indy Light season, now promoted to IndyCar. Pretty cool stuff. Big thanks to them for supporting the show now, going on to, what, I think we're coming up on year four, is it, next year? Anyways, uh, great partners, long-term partners. Same with the Justice Brothers, whose automotive chemicals and lubricants used in IndyCar, used in IMSA, used wherever you get your vehicle serviced. So great old friends there. TorontoMotorsports.com closes out that list of awesome and amazing partners. Our first on the podcast, been with us since I think 2017, year one. So anyways, I am proud. Maybe these things don't mean much to others, but I am proud that we are not talking about every year a new cast of partners who support us. I love the fact that we can say with all of our partners, I think the shortest relationship is three years on the show and all the way to Toronto Motorsports that's been with us since year one. So thanks to them. Thanks to you. Mention quickly that had a little bit of a a fun news thing to share today about Kyle Kirkwood. Maybe when you're listening to this, he will have been formally confirmed by the AJ Foyt Racing Team, but uh, at least with the story that I wrote, uh, the team did not want to comment or confirm. Perfectly fine. That's quite often the norm. Keep in mind, though, that a team doesn't have to confirm something for it to be real. Uh, The sourcing for stories like that uh, are done through other avenues, to confirm it is accurate, and usually, and I know that there are some who fired back uh, complaining about uh, the news being broken before the team presented it. Well, I don't know if you're a reporter, if you aren't actively trying to report news, but um, it's always a courtesy thing where you do your absolute best to reach out to the team ahead of time to say, hey, would you like to speak on the record? Don't expect you to, but would you? And if not, no worries. Doesn't mean that they aren't fully briefed that it's coming, so they're not totally surprised. So super happy for our man Kyle Kirkwood. A little bit of background there, how the sausage gets made for any of those of you who might care. But super happy for Kyle. Obviously not super happy for our French fry, the French fry to my hamburger, Sebastian Bourdais. He's talking. There's some talks. Won't go into what, where, how, and all that kind of stuff, but he is actively discussing how he might remain in IndyCar on a part-time basis. I'll leave it at that um, because it's not even close enough to talk about 
publicly in any way, but some stuff going on there. Some other silly season items, friends. Don't know if we're at the stage where it warrants putting together whatever the latest sixth silly season update, seventh, I don't know, whatever the number would be on racer.com. Might be getting close, though. Uh, There's a couple things I've heard that are brewing that are fascinating, like really fascinating. Need to get a little bit more insight on some of them before I'd feel right about putting them into print. If any of the scenarios that I've heard come to pass, ah, silly season's not done. Not at all. So a little bit of stuff coming there. Have the IMSA season finale this weekend on Saturday. Petit Le Bon Road, Atlanta, 10 hours. I know this is our IndyCar show. Nonetheless, if you're a fan of road racing, fan of IndyCar, you haven't watched much IMSA, Definitely might be worth considering great track, great cars, championships to be decided in every category. Plus, Sebastian Bourdais, Simon Paginot, Scott Dixon, Alexander Rossi, yada, yada. There's a fair amount of IndyCars, IndyCar drivers who will be taking part in the event. So, uh, yeah, uh, worth paying a little bit of televised visit to if you get a chance. So with all that said, let's get rolling with your questions. A little bit of music bed just to uh, kick things off here. And where do we go? Who is going to make the show amazing as we launch here for this week? Well, that is actually all courtesy of our pal Jim Kaiser, who puts together our questions. This is going to come from Andrew Staley. says, greetings, MP. First time submitting a question for the podcast. I love that, y'all. I love it when y'all send these And for the first time, don't hesitate to let me know, even if it's your second or third. Just want to celebrate you for kind of jumping in and playing with the rest of us. Andrew says, what do you think Jimmy Johnson's biggest challenge will be at the Indy 500, and can he win it? Also says, as so many of you do, because there's a lot of really kind and sweet people who listen, says, all the best to you and your wife and the cats. And his cats apparently say hello. I assume when you say mine say hello, you're referring to the cats. Could it be multiple wives? I don't know. I don't want to assume, Andrew, but you left that hanging a little bit. Um, Can he win it? Of course. Juan Montoya watched him spank our team and every other team on debut with Chip Ganassi Racing in 2000, made the rest of us look like children. And while he certainly had oval experience while coming in, uh, first time at the 500 can always be a little bit of a concern. Just from a event-specific experience vacuum. That's the thing you hear from whether it's a, a true young, young rookie, first time there and has all the world to learn, or an older veteran who's done a zillion oval races, but it's their first time at the 500. Almost all of them talk about it took me until year two, year three to gain the 500 miles of knowledge and then add another 500 and fully grasp the changing wind directions and how the cars pack up or don't or restarts or weight jacker, tire management, all these things where Jimmy, one of the true greatest oval racers 
of his era, of the new millennium, of right all the things that we know. Fact is, he has not done 500 miles at Indianapolis with all the different scenarios thrown at him to game plan and know how to react the right way. Could he win it first time out like Montoya did? Could he go into crazy clutch and coast mode like Alexander Rossi to win? Of course, lots of possibilities. Just saying that outside of the Ganassi team having totally dominant cars or some crazy strategy that they go on to, I always look at someone, even if it's a all-timer like Jimmy on ovals, and say, you're going to want to get 500 miles under your belt before you or anyone else would want to put you in a position of being a real name to put up as a contender for victory. So again, it's just the experience part, Andrew, that he's going to want to get. And let's say the Ganassi cars across the board are super dominant. Is he the driver among the five where we would say he's the one I would probably say Scott Dixon and after that Tony Kanaan Polo Alex Polo our man Alex Polo he obviously just had a great result this year so again I don't even know if within his own team I'd say he's the guy come back in 2023 been hearing he signed a two-year deal This coming year is the second of those two years. Been hearing that even if he doesn't decide to do full-time after these two years are up, he would probably want to consider doing the 500 each year. Assuming all these things happen, I would definitely go into the 2023 race and I think naturally put Jimmy in the conversation of he's one of the 10 drivers we think that can win for sure. So, The cool part, Andrew, to close is listening to the rookie Indy 500 drivers, whatever age, who come out of the event and go, oh, man, (laughs) jeez, can you give me like a half hour? I need to go write down everything that I just learned or give me my phone and I'm opening up the notes app or whatever and Uh, I'm going to need a thumb massage because I'm going to be tapping away and the keyboard's going to be smoking with all the things that I just learned that drafting practice and qualifying runs and all these things that we simulate prior to the race, like it gives you an inkling, but it's the hardcore knowledge that you gain that you then use to your advantage when you come back for that second, third, fourth, however many times. Uh, let's go to Jerry Sudeth. How you doing, Jer? I hope you and your awesome family are doing well, my man. He says, it seems to me that the Alex Pelos, Pato Awards, and Colton Herta's became winning drivers quicker than previous generations. Is this a matter of being in the right place at the right time for a good seat or a testament to their talents combined with what appears to be an absolute take-no-prisoners attitude for all of them? Uh You've hit on a number of them, Jerry. There's one added element that they continue to tell me about and the older drivers tell me about as well. That is a real difference. And it is the amount of virtual knowledge gained. 
So if we go back, I mentioned Montoya. If you look at his introduction to IndyCar, no real testing rules back then, crazy amounts of money in the series and the team sponsors spending wildly. You know, we always, maybe it's an exaggeration, but talk about how, you know, he had 50 test days before he did his first IndyCar race. An insane amount to the point where you go, this guy should know. He almost doesn't need to race to learn because he's done so many miles at so many tracks that there's just almost nothing left to figure out before race one has gotten here. We don't have that today, obviously. Crazy testing restrictions for the on-track side. But what we do have that has replaced this, and I realize that real laps versus virtual laps aren't the same, but we do have the ability where our younger drivers like the Patos and Alexes and Coltons and whatnot, when they're not in the car, they are able to do so many miles, whether it's just home with their Thrustmaster and Forza, whatever, if it's what, some sort of iRacing, that's obviously a step up, even to the driver in the loop testing, the big multi-axis, uh, huge hydraulic ram, like this is simulating the almost real forces you would get in the car. Like there's just so many levels, Jerry, of, hey, we're going to make you better with big, crazy zillion-dollar testing simulation equipment down to what you can do at home in your bedroom or basement or whatever. So I'd say that's the big area that you hear a lot of the veterans talk about, like, hey, yeah, if there was a really cool point where we got to do a lot of testing, but you know, there's also some where you'd say, I mean, that's definitely the older IndyCar drivers. If you think about the Paginos, Powers, Hunter Rays and such, you know, they weren't in the unlimited testing era. So they did not get as many miles. I just mentioned all this, Jerry, because the ability for young drivers to take a much greater level of control over their training, knowledge, education, you name it, uh, it's a big deal. Not every young driver is all about the simulation, the iRacing, the whatever else, but there are many who really do invest heavily in that. Gets them up to speed keeps them fresh that's a big deal and so there's a couple other quick factors here too sharing something some of the older drivers have said uh, this modern delar dw12 with all the extra side impact protection material with the aero screen with all kinds of stuff done better safer you name it you can push the boundaries more than you could back in the day without the same level of fear of grave injury. No, the aero screen only came online in 2020, right? So it's not like it's been around forever. You take this phenomenal talent pool that we have, the ability for them to never be limited by how many on-track tests uh, they can or can't do, to take their development into their own hands, you then throw in the fact that, boy, these cars can take a hit, deliver a hit, uh, hit a wall, um, can do a lot of things and 
the the margins of error, the safety margins that might have been, uh, or that might have been intentionally maintained at a higher level, might have been more safety terms of how close you get to the wall, how close you get to others. That's been wound down to a really tiny, tiny number. I think you start to get into why a heightened, heightened take no prisoners attitude is becoming the norm. So just to close here in this, Jerry, uh, a Scott Dixon, a Will Power, a run through some of the established badasses, champions, and whatever that have been around for 10, 15, 20 years. They have the same take no prisoners attitude. That's not something new to Pato, Colton, Alex, etc. Renus. Maybe the always take no prisoners attitude. That I would say is the new thing. That's the new wrinkle, right? Hey, if it's needed, we're going to see that crazy maximum attack thing from that veteran driver. Not always, though. And not in every session, not in every lap. That's the distinction to draw here, my friend. What we are seeing with these younger drivers, it's like a switch that was flipped on and seemingly it's impossible to turn it off. And so that's the heat that some of the veteran drivers are starting to feel. Even some of the like mid-career drivers in and around their 30s are starting to feel from these, quote, kids, uh, barely out of their teens. It's the, oh, I mean, do you want me to sustain this level of maximum attack for how long? <laughs> every session, every lap, every, every, like, calm down. And so, again, I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know if there's something unique to this generation, but I can tell you that the thing that some of the older drivers are talking about privately, that it disturbs them a little bit. It's the, their emotional gas tanks, their, I'm always in rage mode, attack, kill, 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 kill. That can be exhausting especially when you get a little bit older, got kids, got a house, got bills, got parents to look after, got all these things. Like your free mental space is gone because you've got so many things in life to look after and to be a professional here, professional athlete, professional race car driver, and be the best. Take no prisoners is something that is a bit of a, all right, I need to jump out of my normal life and go into this phase for whatever on-track thing I'm doing. This younger generation seems to never be far from that take-no-prisoners attitude, even out of the car. Even if they're laughing and having fun and you name it, you mention something <clears throat> related to competition, Jer, and like the eyes go ice-cold like a great white that has just caught a whiff of prey. It's pretty cool. I got to admit, I've done this for a long time. Worked with drivers, all the stuff that I did before I jumped over to the media side. Uh, even while on the media side, still maintained for a little while there, working in racing. Know what it's like to have a carnivore, a hunter killer in front of you. 
it is cool, Jerry. It really is with some of these younger drivers because, man, they are always ready to eat. They're always ready to devour. And, yeah, cool stuff. Uh, let's go to Daniel Ingleton. He says, hey, MP, we are moving into the 10th year since the last non-Ganassi or Penske champion existed. Does this impact the series in any way? Furthermore, which team is most likely to break this streak? Oh, me and predictions. Daniel, uh, that's never a good marriage. I'd like to say that I couldn't tell you. I'd like to say that I've got some perfect answer. Oh, it's going to be this person at this team. I don't know. It should be Colton Herta at Andretti Autosport. It should also be Pato Award at Errol McLaren SP. It should be Alexander Rossi at Andretti Autosport. Uh, are there any others that really stand out as like, wow, this is, is monster territory from a non-Ganassi, non-Penske team? I'm just going to take a quick look because I, I could be overlooking someone. And I'm just talking about like favorites and stuff. I mean, real, like, do I think you could? Um, yeah, not him. Um, yeah, not him. I want this to happen. I don't know if it's going to. So this is just a, a desire. I don't know how many more years Graham Ray Hall will be doing this full-time at least. I would love to see him mount a strong championship bid from the beginning of 2022. Uh, I hope with some of the changes going on there, uh, not just the addition of a third car with Christian Lundgaard coming on, not just with Jack Harvey coming in, but, some of the engineering developments going on there too at Ray Hall Edelman landing and racing. There's a really strong prospect that that team could be what arrow McLaren SP did this past season. I think there's a real potential for RLL to be that kind of jump up breakout team in 2022. We'll see famous last words, right? Like I said, me and predictions, those are bad things. If some of those things come to pass, though, Daniel, I could see Graham being in title contention. So let's add RLL to that mix, uh, along with Andretti, which was what the last non-Ganassi, non-Penske, 2012 with Ryan hunter if I remember correctly. Um, so uh, AMSP, also known as Spam, uh, definitely Andretti Autosport. I think RLL could be in the conversation. I don't see any other team that is close to being mentioned to being title contenders. Would love for Ed Carpenter Racing to be there. I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, I don't see Dale Coyne Racing jumping up. I don't see Hunkos Hollinger Racing doing that. And I don't see AJ Foyt doing that, even with the mercurial Kyle Kirkwood. So... Don't have a direct answer, but it feels like we could almost flip a coin between Colton and Pato, with one of them being the first to break this pretty significant streak that can't be overlooked. All right. Let's get into a little bit of, I keep wanting to call it dancing with the stars. I don't know why. 
Uh, but we got one or two drive to survive questions. James Malloy says, Paul Tracy posted a snippet from an article to Instagram. He says, I don't know where he got it from. He says, the, uh, it states that IndyCar drivers are too boring to have a drive to survive type docu-series. Do you find this to be true? Or is it just another example of how IndyCar fails to market these drivers? Also, bonus points for Ferrucci versus Daly. Now, that's a good one, James. No, they're no more boring or less boring than Formula One drivers. Anybody who tells you otherwise has no clue as to what they're talking about. Zero. And I know you're not saying Paul is claiming this. You're saying he posted a snippet from something someone else wrote. So, anyways, no. That's just dumb. Overstating the obvious, there aren't many full-time IndyCar reporters left on the planet. I hope there becomes more, but there aren't many of us. So it means that for those of us who do cover IndyCar, some, I guess I'm fortunate to be among those who've covered it for quite some time, who came from IndyCar to then move into the media side, moving from one side of the pit wall to the other, basically. Um, been around these people for a long time. Was once one of those people. Uh, not the driver, but just part of the IndyCar side. Um, team side. And yeah, uh, this is nonsense. So let's go with last week's guest. Rookie, David Maluka. is going to be with Coin. That kid has more personality than half the F1 field. Hilarious, smart, self-deprecating, introspective, He's everything in one package, right? The guy's got so many sides to him. It's going to be fascinating for that to uh, be fully explored. Um, there are, of course, some drivers where you go, yeah, not much there. They might be phenomenal people, but they're, intros they're introverted. I was about to say introspective again. Introverted and as an extrovert, I understand better what it's like for an introverted person to exist in the world. Um, and I understand that those aren't the folks I tend to go to for big, interesting comments about things. I need to get comments from them at times, but for the most part, those who I would say are uh, not the extroverted types, yeah, of course, but hey, you ever notice, say, in Drive to Survive, they don't really spend a lot of time with the non-extroverts? Uh, so, yeah, uh, if you just look at the production of that F1 series, they don't waste their time with the ones who don't have much to say. So I have no concerns about this. Uh, you look at some who maybe aren't big, loud personalities, even some of our folks like that have fascinating sides to them. Super deep, where you go, yeah, there's a lot that could be explored. Colton Herta, absolutely one of them. Scott Dixon, absolutely one of them. Joseph Newgarden, one of them. He's, he's a real introvert, like serious introvert. But the guy is fascinating and hilarious. So Newgarden hilarious pato award he's 
among the biggest he's our daniel ricardo right huge personality tons of fun uh dixon hilarious guy he will cut you up and down with his remarks he is hilarious uh herda that guy is ferocious you would never think it looking at him even listening to him but ferocious marcus erickson i love that guy there's so much to him graham rahal is as complex a person as you will ever meet right and so it's not just the well who's who are we going to put on camera who's going to bounce up and down and right no like whoa geez let's get your thoughts on this graham who don't you like who pisses you off the most uh hope you got hope you got some big big old cards in your camera because he's going to fill them up if he's willing to say it if he's if you know and i think he would um pagino guy's got a lot of opinions he doesn't necessarily want to share he keeps a lot to himself trying to crack that guy would be fascinating and there are some in the paddock who are not big pagino fans ray hall they're definitely folks in the paddock his rivals on track can't stand the guy uh don't know if there's so many who would say that about herda or dixon or or award yet um sato right super respected also not everybody has the finest opinion of him vk same thing he's definitely i would say probably has uh, for among the young drivers he's got a fair amount of folks who don't always have a lot that's crazy positive to say about him behind the scenes uh jack harvey that's a guy that has some opinions fascinating guy too big personality mclaughlin uh i think everybody loves that guy that guy's a, a gamer that guy i think could also be a shit disturber too keep working down the list we haven't even gotten to connor daly or, or rosenquist or elio um jimmy johnson like that guy that guy is so deep that guy is anyway i love that guy and there's so much to him just saying for those who say there's nothing here there's not enough absolutely false i know it because i've seen it and experienced i know not all the drivers that i've mentioned crazy crazy well but the majority of them i know very well and geez yeah this wouldn't be an issue at all uh let's go to the next one here similar from the hoff god drive to survive works not just because the drivers because of the drivers but the personalities in conflict of the team principles if indycar got a dts style show which non-drivers would take center stage does indycar have its own caddy christian horner or sweary gunther steiner um so karen horner i believe is is christian's official new name uh let's see let me look through the list here and i apologize that i don't always have these things just sitting right right on top of my head but it's the way it is well there's a certain super text who speaks with very free tongue i would not necessarily want to have people recording that though uh yeah for those who know i'll just leave it there um michael and ready could be laying in a bed of billion dollar bills and would find something 
negative to point out. Uh, that's improved over the years. As he's gotten older, I have seen a nicer, smilier Michael Andretti, but it doesn't take much to send him down a dark, disenfranchised path. Michael being mad about somebody doing something, saying something, whatever, like that's, I think he's the the first one that stands out as, as our Christian Horner. Um, Sam Schmidt, Rick Peterson, Zach Brown. I know Sam and Zach in particular have very strong opinions. Not always willing to share them publicly, though. Zach is a very polished operator. That's why you don't see him a ton in the sit-down interviews or whatever with Drive to Survive, really speaking his mind a ton. Uh, Oh, he could. He just chooses not to. Uh, So I don't know if we'd get a lot there. Uh, Let's see. Chip Ganassi. Chip is also, uh, might be the most opinionated team owner on pit lane. Um, He's just not a big on-camera guy. If he were to agree to being mic'd up, or if it were shotgun mics picking up what he said from 20 feet, 50 feet away, Oh, that would be amazing. Oh, that'd be amazing. And I don't know. He's not a big cursey. I'm trying to think of the Gunther Steiner guy. It's probably Shank. But, you know, I rate Steiner as, like, truly not an idiot. Right? He's a smart guy. He's all kinds of things. But I don't think he would last an IndyCar uh, for a minute. I don't think any team would hire him. I don't think any, I just, I'm constantly amazed that he finds work in Formula One. So he must do things that are good that I don't know about. But in terms of a team principal leading a team, being the person in charge, setting the course, holding, creating high expectations, holding the team to it, high achievement, like, yeah, uh, I just don't. So like Shank is the total kind of man of the people, curses says whatever's on his mind pounds beers like he's that guy that's not steiner but i'm just saying he's loose in that way that steiner is but i wouldn't associate shank with steiner in any way uh mike shank could do a better job of running the haas formula one team so we'll just leave it at that uh ed carpenter is pretty buttoned up um he does have opinion like they all have opinions that's the thing it's just the willingness to share them and who wants to be the one who's criticizing it? Like Ed, you know, not much gets by Ed. Things that he doesn't think's right, think whatever, whatever. Like he doesn't miss a thing. That guy is as sharp as they come. Also realizing his family and the lineage and whatnot that, you know, him being the one putting folks on blast, not so much of good luck with the, uh, the Holman George family angle to it. So I get why he might not be the guy there. All right, Penske, Roger, curses constantly. Cannot get him to stop. I'm kidding. That'd be hilarious if it was true, though. I don't know if there's the the true Steiner in the group, but it doesn't take Bob Rahal too much to point out the many flaws of series or others. I could apply that to many, the many of the other team owners 
uh, Dale Coyne behind the scenes, owners meetings and that kind of stuff. That guy has been like firing bazookas for decades publicly, not his personality. So at the same time, we just close here. Also have to think about drive to survive, right? How many team principals don't sit in the chair and really let their thoughts, opinions, criticisms fly? The ones that we have, the Horners, the Steiners, etc. Phenomenal. Makes for great viewing, fun, and whatnot. How many aren't in that chair? Got to realize it's like half the paddock. And even for those who do sit there, Mattia Bonotto or whomever else, don't say a bunch. So I I don't want to give too much credit here to drive to survive like, oh my gosh, they've cracked open the whole paddock. Everybody talks. Everyone's what? No, it's select people, some select stars that they go back to frequently. And those open folks, whether it's they're saying positive or negative or caddy or whatever things, they make the series. But let's just be clear. It's not wide open paddock. Everybody's putting into that. Absolutely not the case so i think it's just more situation of if it were to happen in indycar highlighting five six drivers your go-tos three four team owners throwing a couple of team manager team principal types select the key ones that are going to hit the home runs for you that's all you need uh jamie carr you say marshall best to your wife and cats and me thanks jamie in Colton Hurt's interview, he mentioned trusting a teammate's data. Would a teammate intentionally give wrong testing data, etc., to a teammate? Not asking for names, I would think it would be more of a teammate not, quote, speaking the same language and how they describe racing on their setup or maybe their driving styles are so different, it's difficult to have common ground. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you're too far off in the latter bits here, Jamie. Uh, a driver or a teammate blowing apexes, breaking early, breaking too late, messing up their, quote, data to protect what they know from a teammate, that'd be a little bit hard because there's this thing called theoretical lap. And you'll hear it mentioned from time to time. Um, The theoretical lap is one where looks they look through uh whether the data system data system can do it on its own but it's usually the uh assistant engineer who's combing through trying to find the the real best sectors um get information that says okay your best theoretical lap with your best performances in individual corners slash sectors combine to make this lap time and it's always faster than what your best real time was because that best real lap invariably is going to have a little mistake here. Again, it might not even be a mistake. It just might be on another lap. You did it a little better in this one area. And so it just pieces together, Jamie, all the best sector data, compiles that, spits out your theoretical lap. As a result, 
if you're out there intentionally fudging your laps just to try and hide something you think might benefit your teammate, you're hurting yourself because you're not truly giving your race engineer or yourself uh, the ultimate version of the car, right? You're not finding its limit and either saying this is amazing and perfect or this limit is lower than it should be. Others are doing better in this section, in this corner, in this handling dynamic area. Um, so I don't know if there's a whole lot there. Now, granted, have there been times in history where for sure teammates have tried to hide things? Yes, but these days... I think it'd be pretty hard to do that. Plus with the best theoretical, um, even if you're fudging laps here or there, if you do well in any of the other laps, it's going to be easy to find and discern in that theoretical stuff here. Come back to Colton's overarching thing, which I, I interpreted to be what he was saying, talking about trusting the teammates' data. Get to know somebody like a Groschon, like a DeFrancesco. Not only do you learn if their driving style is similar to yours, so there could therefore be something relatable between the two of you. If you're going to go in a direction of, hey, we're going to change this in terms of springs, we're going to change that in damping, we're going to move the center pressure, whatever they're going to do. You quickly find out, okay, this guy's on my team or this person's not on my team from a driving and setup need standpoint. And if you determine that a teammate just has radically different driving style and wants the car set up in a totally different way, you know that person's not someone you're going to to say, yeah, uh, how, how did you feel that change? Uh, how, what did that do for you? What did you blah, blah, blah. How did you develop that? And where'd you end up? Like, you know that you're not going to be able to take their setup and apply it to what you need so there's that angle of the trust and then there's the not every driver gives great feedback not every driver can break things down to minutiae and repeat and recite things with great accuracy uh, there are some folks who are amazing at driving the cars quickly aren't a huge help in making it better and so that's the trust part. Uh, hey, cool, teammate. You're on pole. Awesome. Can you tell me what you did to make the car better to be on pole? Okay, well, thanks. There wasn't much there. Um, so it's, it's those things. I think that's the, the sorrow that I heard a little bit in Colton's voice of losing Ryan Hunter Ray and losing James Hinchcliffe. He knew that he could trust what they said. There was value in their feedback. Also, obviously, Alexander Rossi still being there, he has a great proven ally in him. But just for Colton, he knew that within the full-time driver rotation, the engineering side, the driver feedback, the setup, the everything, was a really finely crafted thing that he could rely on. And if he and his race engineer were off in the wilderness, uh, he could go to name the driver and say, hey, what did you do? You know, maybe we're going to try what you did and know that whatever they are telling them, yeah, okay, we went in this direction and it made the car do this, that, and the other that I loved. Cool. Apply that setup. It's going to find the same things. It's just that trust, that, that 
comfort level, Jamie. So he's going to be a guy who is learning what his new teammates have to say and listening and getting a feel as to whether they're a part of improving his season or not. Uh, J.J. Gertler says Marshall had a co-entries work. When a Vassar Sullivan or Rick Ware racing teams with someone like Coyne, are they bringing anything to the table besides money? Maybe Jimmy Vassar's experience. How's it different from straight sponsorship? Along the same lines, do Rocky and Rosie intend to continue? Those are our cats. They're single cat operations, or will they be better merged into Rocky Rosie racing? Yet another great question about cats, J.J. Gertler. Uh, I'm going to need to speak with them. can tell you that with the time change here over uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, they're not impressed that they're having to wait an hour longer to eat. Uh, their bodies are telling them it's way past due. We're just trying to remind the remind cats that don't fully understand this uh, clock moving forward or clock moving back stuff. That yeah, so it's thrown the operation off a little bit. Going to be hard for me to get an answer if they're going to merge into a co-entry. Getting back to the serious question here, all depends, man. I mean, there there's no co-entry that is alike. Is it bringing things, money, cars, transporters? Is it that? Is it a financial sharing thing? Hey, it could be prize money. It could be leader circle. It could be whatever. Is it we're going to get to keep stuff, right? Like, okay, we're going to invest and we're going to be co-entrants and at the end of our deal, we're going to get to keep some stuff or hold on or, or whatever, whatever, or... Is it staff? Are we bringing some folks that we have in our NASCAR, IMSA, wherever type operation to be a part of this? And these are all general things that uh, that you would consider. Then there's the uh, co-owner angle, which is fun, like a Jim Meyer buying into Meyer Shank Racing where they're true equity partners, he and Mike Shank and so on. Um uh, along with Mike's wife, Liberty Media's bought in as well. So it's maybe a really simple-sounding answer, but, J.J., it really does come down to what do you want and what does the other person need? And if we talk about Vassar Sullivan as, the, as one example, they've bought a Delar DW12, so they contribute that. They have sponsorship that they bring sponsors have never to my knowledge been known as like massive full budget providing deals but they need those sponsors presented on the car like a primary well that works great with a dale coin who invests in his own team each year puts up I know the number changes from year to year, but just say in, in general, puts up, say, half the budget for uh, one of the entries, maybe two, who knows. Well, if you have someone coming along willing to put up, say, the other half of the budget or close to it, and the car looks fully sponsored and looks really healthy, and uh, and that maybe attracts more sponsors or drivers to come the following year to say, oh, look at that, they're looking big and strong and well-represented, and they've got you know, sponsors all over the thing. Well, again, it's all about the value, man. Who needs what? Uh, I'd say in the Coin Vassar Sullivan thing, Coin likes looking fully sponsored, fully paid up, and 
good to go that way. For the Vassar Sullivan side, it it's a great place for them to uh, look big and important uh, without having to bear the brunt of owning and running a full team of their own. So yeah, a little bit of symbiotic relationship in that example, but it is very different. Rick Ware brings uh, owns no cars to my knowledge, but brings sponsorship, and that's pretty cool. And I sh- would be pretty darn sure in saying they profit from that. So, again, all depends what folks are looking for on the team owning side and those who are coming in as co-entrants with whatever it is that they have to offer. Uh, let's see, where do we go here? Pick up the pace just a little bit to try and get in as many as I can in roughly an hour and a half. Uh, Ed Joris, start of the F1 race in Mexico. Sergio Perez and Pierre Gasly went off course between turns one and two to avoid the crash between Botas and Ricardo. Since Perez passed Hilton by taking the shortcut, he gave the position back. On the restart, Perez was third, Gasly was fourth. No one complained about their positions on the restart. Am I right that if this were IndyCar, Perez and Gasly would have been moved to the back of the field, uh, like Pelot, Dixon, and Rossi in Portland? Please tell me that IndyCar is going to get rid of their ridiculous rule in such situations and move to something akin to the F1 rule that makes more sense. I'd love to tell you that, Ed. I just don't have that as knowledge. I think IndyCar, though, was embarrassed enough with how the Portland thing went down. I know that obviously Polo drove back and all those who were front runners who went to the back because of that penalty, the, the chicane at Portland, um, they obviously ended up having a good race and recovering, but just a lack of nuance there. Um, the one size fits all penalty. I don't know if that works for IndyCar. Um, the way that they think it should. Uh, I do like, I did like what F1 did in saying, hey, we know that turn one here can get a little bit messy. You're going 18 million miles an hour. And then we have a really sharp, basically 90 degree right hand turn. So perfect scenario, like turn one at Portland for things to get a little bit messy. We're not going to hold your feet to the flames on lap one. If things get a little bit out of sorts, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically we're not going to penalize you. Just don't take what isn't yours. Give back if you get something that doesn't belong to you in terms of track position, and we won't intervene. If you don't adhere to that, you're going to see us intervene. Different scenario with IndyCar, though. Say the Portland start where we had real contact and stranded damaged cars and a big caution period and, you know, there was, say, added time taken to try and sort things out in ways that the somewhat brief um, pause to the open of the Mexico race. I don't know if they played out the same way, Ed, but I would say I do like the idea of, hey, we've got the field under control. Even those who had to blow through the corner, the chicane, the whatever, like, we've got you under control. Um you give your position, give move back two, and you move up one, and what? And like, let's just—if you didn't already do it on your own, we're going to tell you to do it uh, within, you know, the next twenty seconds while we're circulating behind the pace car, or we are going to penalize you. 
um, we're going to send you to pit lane and let you sit, and then we'll make sure you go to the back of the field. Um, I think the honor system here, and that we're not going to hammer you because the dynamic of the corner breeds this kind of stuff. That was the thing that was missing at Portland. I would hope there would be some sort of adjustment to reflect that lack of flexibility. Uh, Brian Burrell says it's the off season, so I'm bored, and I'm thinking of random things. It says with Christian Lungard's deal, it was mentioned somewhere that he was bringing two to three million from Alpine. Well, I have mentioned that in print more than once, so maybe Racer was the somewhere, and the number that I have heard is between three and three and a half million. Brian says, "Is this his sponsor or from actual owners of Alpine? Just to keep him under contract in racing." Should we see this as a short-term deal and maybe more importantly, a successful funding model for IndyCar teams to expand? Wouldn't pretend to know the details, I ask, and they still don't send me the contracts to look through and read. Um, Kidding aside, I don't know what Alpine's long-term plans or goals are for Lundqvist. Is he someone that they do think would be F1 material? They just don't have room for him right now? Right, uh, Esteban Ocon, pretty darn good at driving race cars. Fernando Alonso, also pretty darn good. Don't know if Fernando is going to be there two, three, four, five more years. So is Lingard a rental? Is he someone that they want to see get racing experience, stay warm per se, um, help cover you know half the budget or so, and at least have him on the sidelines ready to go if need be? I would say that would be a smart call. Uh, Is it more than that? I truly don't know. Would also say it would strike me as odd. I I apologize if this was in the press release and I missed it. It's just me. But I I don't know if it would strike me as odd if RLL signed Lungard for a one-year deal, nothing more. Again, maybe that's what they did. Maybe it's in the press release. Maybe I totally missed it. Knowing that they're trying to build something with a third car, develop the team, reach higher, become more, it would just surprise me if he was only signed a one year. I would think it would be two at least uh, with an option, maybe even for a third, but uh, we'll find out. But if nothing else other than giving him a great place to go race since formula one isn't an option right now and for a relatively at least compared to f1 like minuscule amount of three to three and a half million dollars sounds like a really good investment to me brian uh i i lemur from reddit says if by magic there was to be a san francisco pacific Heights street race could the cars even navigate the grade changes and unprecedented levels of ride height I'm curious how far you think the cars can be set up to try and drive environments outside of its design. I love the idea as someone who spent a lot of my life in San Francisco. Uh, this would be fun. This would be a lot of fun. But yeah, you mentioned the setting up the cars outside of their uh, design. There's no way we're doing this event with the cars as they are right now and the adjustments that they have. So, yeah, uh, some significantly increased ride height would certainly be part of it. Uh, 
is there the ability to make all the necessary suspension geometry changes and bump steer caster yada yada like all the suspension adjustments need i would imagine it would go just beyond dialing up the ride height you'd probably have to uh make some other key changes to pick up points and shims here and there and all kinds of stuff impossible no not at all for just one race though i don't know if uh, indycar would sign off for that but is it possible of course absolutely granted there's a little bit of a limitation here in terms of probably more than anything else drive shaft angle i mean if you're having to make the car sit way the heck up in the air you start getting too much droop on the drive shafts um yeah you might start snapping things there i would have to say i'm guessing if we're talking the pacific height street race and for those who don't know it's just a really uh high grade like crazy you know you walk a third of the way up the street and stop kind of doubled over panting all right at least for a fact i like me like it's it's like hiking mountains kind of thing Uh, and then you get to a plateau and it either falls off on the other end or you go flat for a little while and then you go up another huge incline i would say it would be in a six-speed transmission uh we're talking about first second third and fourth being crazy low gears um and stacked pretty close together uh in terms of ratios so yeah i don't know if we'd have a lot of top speed it'd be interesting though kind of be wacky for sure and i'm sure a lot of cars will get destroyed so yeah uh this sounds like a perfect eye racing thing so somebody get on it uh let's see ryan terpstra never heard of him before um kidding it says nascar's championship four had the entire field covered at phoenix for the second year in a row my conspiracy theory is they're giving them an advantage somehow why is this a good or not good thing and why should we never do it in indycar yeah it's funny it's always funny how hey a big new name is coming to nascar oh and they're on the pole for the daytona 500 the big opening race how crazy yeah i don't know maybe there's nothing to it maybe they're the four best so that's why they ran uh the best for the most part ryan nascar has a lifelong reputation whether it's always been accurate or not of manipulating the state of play for entertainment would say that has not been indycar's reputation so it would not be a good thing to leave folks with the impression that if indycar were to go to a chase and a championship four or whatever <clears throat> to find that the uh those four in indycar were somehow magically the ones who were running the best so let's not do that cody oakwood hey mp with you confirming the end of the freedom 100 do you think carb day needs a replacement um a replacement event to keep folks buying tickets for that day says i know carb day was a pretty big deal before the freedom 100 uh became a thing but i feel this could be a textbook you don't know what you got till it's gone sounds like a song is final practice in the pit competition enough now Eh. we in the sport those of us who are the huge diehard fans 
I think all knew that the Freedom 100 was the big thing. That was the whole, that was carb day. Everything else, meh, whatever. Uh, secondary at best. Was it ever enough to say fol- for folks to say, well, I don't even care about the other stuff? Could be a concert, could be the on-track action with indie cars, could be all the other, like, pfft. I'm just going for the Freedom 100. I don't know if it ever got to be that, Cody. So that's that's my little question here, pushback a little bit. The best event of the month, Freedom 100, period. The first 99 might not even be that great, but that 100th, I'm telling you, that last lap, the best part of the month, guaranteed, in terms of on-track action. Eh, it not being there, eh, it makes me sad. Obviously, it makes a lot of us sad. Does it stop folks from wanting to come out and see everything else? I don't think so. Uh, I really don't. So I don't know if we're going to see anything change here, my man. Um, Penske Entertainment just does not want the risk. Therefore, no longer have the risk, my man. Cassie Johnston. Holy cow. Is this the Cassie Johnston from the interwebs? Well, that's pretty darn cool. At mama underscore G-Force. Why did I not think of that Twitter name, Cassie? I am truly gener- generous. I'm genimous. Uh, could be jealous, I was trying to say. We're going to go with genimous. I'm not drunk. Haven't even had any alcohol. Probably hard to tell, though. Uh, Cassie says, resubmission, because I asked her to send this in again. Can we get the skinny on driver o- overheating this past session? I also got new lips, by the way. I got those installed yesterday, so still uh, the setup isn't quite right. That's why they're not flapping properly right now. She says, was it just a matter of discomfort? Or was it seriously impacting some driver's performance? Is the problem solved now with the cool suits? Some more work to be done. She closes in the kindest of ways by saying best to you and Chabrell. Thank you, Cassie. Hmm. Haven't published this story yet, just because it's a bit of an evergreen thing, but maybe I will hear shortly. Uh, spoke with Jay Fry, I don't know, last month, whenever it was, on the topic of cool suits. Said, hey, uh, this should be a, a mandatory thing in terms of the weight. So I don't know if you can force a human being to put on a cool shirt, but there is a bit of a thing where the systems weigh about eight pounds. No team wants to put an extra eight pounds on the car unless they absolutely have to. So rather than turn this into a he-man, he-woman, who can survive roasting themselves uh, and save eight pounds and have an advantage over those who've said, no, I'm going to run the cool shirt and whatever, carry that eight pound penalty uh instead of making this a toughness thing why don't you just say hey at events where we determine friday morning saturday morning whatever it is hey the forecast says it's going to be stupid hot or it's going to be real humid or it's going to be both this is a driver cooling weekend If your driver elects to not use the cool shirt, that's fine. But you will be bolting eight pounds of ballast into the area where that system would go. 
And for those who do want to run the system, cool. Put the system in, use it. You've got your eight pounds of keeping yourself nice and not steamy. And so everybody is equal and everybody is not trying to sneak an advantage on one, one another by not running the system and trying to get that eight pound advantage. That's the thing I asked Jay about said he would think about it. Wasn't sure if that's something they would enforce, but due to talk to him shortly. So I'll try and circle back and see if that is indeed something they've given a little more thought to, because this is a driver safety thing. It really is. And I'm going to come back to the overheating part in just a moment, but just in a really general sense, this isn't driver comfort. This is driver safety. So if there are those who don't want to run the system, cool. You're just not going to get an advantage by making that choice. That's the thing to fix. I would think just about everybody would agree that makes sense, but there's always one or more who would dissent uh, wanting to gain the advantage. And then that mucks up the IndyCar saying, yes, hell yes, we're going to do it. Um, the driver overheating thing, just as Connor Daly outlined, uh, as Sebastian Bourdais outlined, as a few others outlined, it's a highly individual thing. Uh, I don't know how else to describe that, Cassie. We all have varying abilities to take on and shed heat. And Connor, I think, was the most vocal and most descriptive in saying, look, <laughs> if I was an engine... I am always running hot on the brink of overheating. That's me. That's my body, period. Whether I'm in a race car baking with the radiators on both sides of me here that are super hot, the ambient air, the humidity, the right, all these things conspire to cook me like a Thanksgiving turkey. Put a different driver in the car whose body is a super efficient machine, takes that heat, sheds it, and they run cool, right? Uh, the folks that need like big blankets in the summer to stay warm, um, compared to those of us like yours truly, who never has more than like just a sheet. Never. These are the differences. And so this is why we can't have a single rule that says, oh, it's fine. You know, no, none of you can have a cooling system or you must use them at all times or whatever. Like, it's just that recognition, Cassie. So this is the thing that has been, I guess, confirmed or acknowledged that, yeah, there are some drivers who absolutely say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no issue here. I mean, yeah, it does get hot, but it doesn't really bother me and it doesn't sap my performance and I'm fine. You have others who say, I'm coming into pit, take the drinks out of the cooler, and then when I stop, pour all the ice on top of me out of the cooler because I am about to become a puddle of a human in the bottom of the seat if you don't. It's not a weakness thing. It's not a bravery thing. It's just individual physiology. That I would say, that's the reality to accept here. And I, I believe IndyCar has accepted it. 
We'll just see if they decide to zero out anybody turning their driver's greater natural ability to cool themselves into an on-track lower weight advantage compared to those who really do need to install those systems to keep their drivers from overheating, their brains starting to shut down, at least, you know, pin-sharp processing and whatnot. So be reporting back to you on this, my friend. Uh, Rich... Go Leafs, go Parsons from Twitter. Hi, Marshall. With all the talk about more US F1 races on top of Coda in Miami, should IndyCar be worried about F1 taking directly from its share in an already packed US sports market? Uh, yes, Rich. Got to look at the numbers, right? What do we have on average? 16, 17, 18 IndyCar races a year. Got it. Um, one, two, who knows, maybe even three visits to the good old us of a by f1 is not going to radically disrupt indycar in terms of fans and ticket sales and all that i'll tell you though man it's one thing when the band comes to uh comes to town once a year it's another thing when it starts to do longer visits or say go to key markets more than once a year in your backyard or close to and really starts to develop a thing and that's the issue here what was it 18 trillion people applied for tickets for next year's miami grand prix the moment that you know that thing opened up it's nuts indycar could not hope to fill homestead miami speedway if we went to Sebring, name some of the other Floridian racetracks, Daytona. And again, I know there's a lot of like NASCAR stuff here. I'm not, I don't mean all those rivalries and entanglements. I'm just saying if IndyCar went to put on a Miami street race, I don't think we sell, I don't think we sell nearly as many tickets. So does F1 now own Miami? Maybe. F1 owns Austin, Texas, Circuit of the Americas. If it were to go to somewhere else, it'd probably own that too, um, taking at least those markets away from IndyCar, Rich. Um, the overarching thing I look at here is I love F1. I've loved F1 for almost as long as I've loved IndyCar. So right, I, I have dual passions here. I obviously want to see both succeed but there's only one series of the two that truly is in need of building up its fan base and becoming important again and i would love to hear that indycar has come up with a internal earmuffs moment holy shit we should be scared about formula one task force What are all the things that F1's doing that we need to be scared about where they might devalue our property? IndyCar, Indy 500, whatever else. What are the things they're doing to make us number two open-wheel property in our home country? Not just once a year, but twice, maybe three. And if you've got two to three F1 races happening here per year in their big gangbusters sellouts... I think you do have to start to worry that, yeah, uh, you're losing on home turf. So if there isn't some sort of, they're coming to swallow us whole type task force, 
some folks are having grand failures of imaginations, Rich. I don't know if there's a yes or no answer to this, but I wonder if Roger Penske, uh, Bud Denker, Jonathan Gibson, Mark Miles, and whatnot were at Circuit of the Americas or were at Mexico last weekend to see what F1 has become in North America over the last two, three years. Staggering. Like, this is one of those deals where if you've got the restaurant that was once really popular and a new one's come right across the street from you and it has got lines down the street and it's kicking your ass, like, you hope, even if they got to put on a disguise, the owners of the old restaurant that's no longer as popular goes and stands in line and goes inside and gets seated and looks at everything and starts taking notes of what they're doing that's better service uh the decor quality of the plates and forks and spoons the meals the everything like break it all down and go wow we've at least come up with a full list of all the ways that they are doing better more or different than us that is leading to this lines down the street you never never satisfy all the people that want to get inside to eat there i hope folks from penske entertainment even if they bought general admission tickets <laughs> were at coda were at mexico and taken big notes because this isn't about pride and we're only going to do stuff if we have original idea look man it's a copycat industry learn adapt and improve because i'm telling you formula one views indycar as something to destroy david cubine you're going to help us to start to wind down here going to go to your question where you say i thought this would be a good off-season question how does an indycar underbody ground to force effects create downforce or any race car for that matter i've read about uh bernoui uh venturis and and such effects but i could benefit from your excellent ability to make the complex much more understandable that's nice of you and without math being involved uh so just how does joe tonto suck up those manhole covers that's an awesome question (laughs) (sighs) little sidebar here so had a conversation last weekend i think with my pal steve shunk um he's one of robin miller's best friends and Steve's been helping to uh, get Robin's condo kind of uh, organized and, and emptied out and that kind of stuff. Um, and so two years ago, I think it was, a kind person, maybe even a listener, I apologize if I'm forgetting, um, helped me. I bought a Joe Tonto-driven movie theater cardboard cutout. So one of those kind of life-size things that you see standing back in the days when we used to go to movie theaters. Uh, so he had one, sold it to me. wasn't super inexpensive, but it wasn't crazy. Just more rare. Like, you just don't see those things come up that often. So the whole plan was, Colton Herta had told me he'd never seen Driven. I'm like, all right, well, that's dumb. We're going to fix this. And so the plan was, I think this was maybe for 2020 if I was able to go and I wasn't able to go to the 500. 
we're going to have a, a viewing of Driven, just kind of a private viewing. Who knows? Maybe whatever. And maybe raise a little bit of money for a charity or something like that. But part of the fun was, well, I wanted to have this cardboard cutout of Joe Tonto there. I got a poster and, you know, whatever. Do it in one of the garages or something like that. Uh, so I said, hey, Miller, um, this is going to be specific for the 500. So can I have this very kind person who sold this to me uh, send it to you and you hold on to it for me? And he said, yep, not a problem. So did, uh, made it to Miller's. And so I rang Shunk and I'm like, hey, brother, I know you're trying to settle everything at, uh, at Robbins. That's the only thing of mine that's there. If you come across it, could you set it aside? He's like, I, I've, I've looked there everywhere and I haven't seen it. So I've, I, wow, okay. So he said, there's one place I can think of. Went out into the garage and found it. Found the cardboard box. Found it was, you know, uh, dressed to Robin Miller for me and said, it's here, but it's not here. Like, what? He says, yeah, it, it's been opened. So the, you know, larger cardboard, whatever it was shipped in, it's been opened and it's not in there. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, I have no idea. So it did arrive. Miller told me it did arrive back in the day, but it did arrive. It's sitting out here. It's not a small shipping thing that, that, that came, but apparently it's been opened and it's missing. So that's a mystery. Who made off with my freaking Joe Tonto movie cardboard cutout that had been sitting at Miller's? Okay, all that stuff aside, you said Joe Tonto, so that's what brought it to mind, David. It's a real simple, simple system of vacuum. It's all it is. Uh, creating negative pressure. So it's about speeds. It's about wings. So we're talking about an underwing. And I know you're talking about the floor. Uh, how, how does downforce get made on the underbody of a race car, IndyCar in this example? Super simple. And I'll just, again, keep it super simple. The underbody, the underwing is just that. It's described as a wing. It has a wing-like profile. A lot of varieties of it could be a flat bottom with just a diffuser stuck on the back that helps to do this to accelerate the air as it travels under the car towards the back and really zoom takes off um, through that diffuser and leaves out the backside of the car. But let's just think about a regular rear wing or front wing uh, and imagine that being not too much different than the profile of what's going on beneath the Indy car with that underbody wing. Uh, you have air that is traveling longer distance and having to travel at a higher speed to catch up with the top of the air going across that wing. And so this is the fun, cool, interesting thing from a physics standpoint. While learning about air, aerodynamics, wings, downforce how it's made wherever i read it whomever said it to me whatever it was just a very basic truism of air it's a fluid air hates to be separated from itself from its friends <laughs> air hates to be separated it likes to be one large unbroken blob block whatever you want to call it of invisible fluid 
So when you have something like a wing cutting through the air, it is indeed separating it. And as this fluid functions, and I guess we just say all fluid, but as this fluid functions, there's a big race between the air that goes over the top of the wing profile and beneath the bottom of that curved wing profile to meet up again and become reattached. So knowing that we have the longer curved profile on the bottom side of the wing than we do on the top side of the wing, in order for the air to catch up and reattach and stop being separated, the air going beneath this race car wing travels at a higher rate. It's this Venturi effect. It's this acceleration effect. That event creates low, low pressure. It's in that event of the air racing beneath the wing to catch up with air going over the top of the wing that creates that low pressure. What is low pressure? Suction. It's the other easy way to describe it. Invert this, flip this with an airplane wing. It's exactly the same process, the same phenomenon. The air traveling over the top of that airplane wing, it's just all we do in racing is flip it, invert the profile. So the longer distance is on the bottom in racing. Airplane wing, the longer distance is on the top. That air racing over the top of that airplane wing to catch up with the air going beneath it creates lift, creates suction upwards. So it's the same principle here. It's that race between the air having to accelerate beneath the wing and the race car dynamic here, David, to try and catch up to the air going over the top that creates the low pressure. That low pressure is downforce. That's suction. Uh, That's why as we see the angle increase on the wing when folks increase, right, turning, cranking the wing angle up, it's a greater separation caused. It's a greater separation between the air coming off the bottom of the wing, trying to catch up to the top of the wing. And bigger void, bigger suction, more downforce. You want to reduce that, lay the wing almost flat, if not a little bit negative? Well, that's when we start, if we're thinking about the Indy 500, right? We talk about the rear wing and qualifying where they tilt it super far back. What are they doing? They don't need all that downforce, at least in qualifying. They go a little bit crazy, a little bit risky. And by laying it back as far as they're allowed to, you have almost eliminated the differential. You've almost eliminated the needing to speed up the air beneath the wing to catch what's going over the top. They're almost at equal speed. They aren't. Of course, there's downforce being made, but just saying in in a very general term, that's where you take downforce off. So, yeah, it's that race. Air doesn't like to be separated, David. So one thing that happens when you do separate it, 
you have to have a curved profile wing profile on the bottom on a race car well you done get downforce uh brian haywood you're asking for a buddy rice update one of your favorite drivers been doing coaching uh i think someone even responded uh to you on the good old twitters um yeah been doing driver coaching and whatnot road to indy uh haven't heard a ton about him doing a lot of driving lately but yeah i think more he's doing more stuff on the team side than anything else my friend i spoke to him a couple months ago um yeah want to catch up with him next time i uh have some time to do that let's see gator racing four from reddit howdy mp we're almost down here to the finish line y'all says any thoughts on the feasibility of a quote tank chats style video series with ims museum collection for context tank chats is a niche yet popular youtube series that goes over the development and history of various armored vehicles at the tank museum in uh bovington in the uk it would may it would be incredible to have a similar series with 15 to 20 minute videos on vintage racing machines it would make for great off-season content in my opinion hashtag me personally also says all the best to you and your wife thanks gator racing four. Oh boy uh as for the any thoughts yes this is exactly what i want to do truly and i i'm not even kidding this is just about all i want to do is this one thing you mentioned but more uh i've broached the subject with ims museum about doing this kind of stuff and it is exactly up my alley with my mechanical and engineering background on the racing and indy car side i think i'm uniquely placed to do just this uh whether it's a tank chat or uh beneath the bodywork or whatever it might be called to sit down and film and do deep dives into all kinds of amazing vintage indie cars also want to do this with other vintage machines that i love so this wouldn't just be reserved for the ims museum here in the san francisco bay area we're fortunate to have a very robust and uh, thriving for decades vintage uh, restoration and, and maintenance and running uh, thing going on at Sonoma Raceway, private shops, you name it. Uh, there's a lot of amazing vehicles, whether it's Formula One, Can-Am, Trans-Am, run down the list. I'm not that old to where I, I'm going to stop being a motor racing reporter and traveling and doing all that stuff. I'll be super honest with you, though. I love the idea of this being like 50% of what I do where it's me, video camera, lighting, mic'd up and showing you the vehicles that I love and appreciate things that are important, important from a technical standpoint in history, uh, but also maybe some of the cars that are just important because they're beloved this is really honestly uh, i love that you sent this because you've more or less described everything that i want to do uh, and i just it's a question of time gator racing four i'm hoping that in about 10 days time i will not be 100 percent flat out and that'll be the first time in a little while where i'll just be able to wake up kind of 
write stories that interest me and knock off at five o'clock, six o'clock, pretty much every night. My wife can attest to this um, at whatever time. Uh, we obviously do a lot of traveling with a lot of appointments, but it could be four o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, whatever. I'll be in the office here, cut off at whatever time, and then grab my laptop and it'll be with me for hours at night on the couch working away doing whatever just trying to stay on top of the things that i am already committed to do so none of that's a complaint just looking towards a time where things are not as wacky crazy busy so that i can do stuff like this the last little note i would add is when i was at the motor rolex motor no rolex monterey motorsports reunion in august i think it was i did take the time to do some of this filming with a number of the awesome cars brought whether it was from the ims museum or those that were uh, owned privately did take the time with an old video camera that i bought that had been sitting because uh, obviously i hadn't really gotten out to any races for a long time and i did start the filming part for a couple of indie cars so kind of got a test run test mule thing here to try and figure out it takes a long time for me to do video editing in adobe premiere and it's just because i'm still learning this is my first year and i still haven't been able to invest consistent time into figuring it out i'm figuring it out but a lot of the cool stuff and after effects and all the things to make it look as good as it should uh, that's the part that i'm a little weak on so i'm having to figure that stuff out as well but i hope uh, i'll set a goal here in december to get at least one of those videos done with one of the really cool cars that i spent time don't know if many of them had the bodywork all the way off but filming as much as i could so i'll try and get that going and then do whatever length narration over it and point out the things that i love and that'll be a little bit of a test balloon and if that doesn't suck hopefully i can do some more final little note here to mention and i'll see if i'm going to take any more before i say farewell any more questions definitely wondering and could definitely use some production support it's not necessarily just the editing although i'd love for someone to do an amazing job editing the stuff that i shoot and hand it back all ready to go just to narrate with all kinds of great animations ready to drop on top of it but that's the thing that is a limitation for me right now i'm pretty much a self everything guy learned how to do everything on you know solo do it all solo at the track yeah that's the next step for me if i can find a good partner to help and not someone who's going to do it for a week or a month and then beg off but like yeah man let's go do some cool stuff um i'd hope to be able to do more of this so great mention more to follow all right we are indeed just at about hour and a half i'm going to look here through the last couple uh tech development opportunities duncan idaho 11 you say hey mp any inklings from indycar about opening up development windows for teams and their partners 
Um, recently you mentioned the hybrid side being nothing open for electric car companies. I'm hoping, I don't know if that's realistic, but I'm going to keep pushing for it. Duncan, uh, it's actually something I'm writing about for the next issue of racer. So, um, I hope, I just don't know if IndyCar is brave enough to do this, to open themselves up and allow others to come in and not have the series be 100% spec-minded. Dennis Batista, AMP, says, Watching races outside the U.S. is practically impossible. Heard anything else about it? Says, Best regards from Panama. Hey, Panama, how you doing, Dennis? Heard nothing, buddy. (laughs) I've heard nothing. Outside of Mexico and France, that being Pato Award and... Well, I mean, obviously we've had Bourdais, we've had Pagano, but now, especially with Romain Grosjean joining in, I know IndyCar is trying to dial up things a little bit more there. (sighs) Might be a a good reason for a deeper dive with, say, a Mark Miles or similar who's in charge on that end at IndyCar to say, hey, what more can be done to open up IndyCar to more markets? Uh, I know the, the super easy answer is pick whatever it is, you know, YouTube Plus or sign up for some form of streaming thing where you can watch every IndyCar race uh, on a globally available platform. But I don't know if those are options, but it sure seems like they need to become options. Uh, Barry Lee, any real chance of seeing Kyle Larson try the Indy 500 in the coming years? Can't imagine so, Barry. I know that there are a lot of folks, including our late pal Robin Miller, who said, got to happen, perfect guy, needs to happen. Two things here. I've never heard Kyle say, I dream of doing the Indy 500. I've heard him say, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, I wouldn't mind one day or yeah. I've never heard him be the conversation starter. Got to get there. Got to do the 500. As long as that's the case, spin an hour wheels, hoping that he'll be there. The other part, now that he's a new NASCAR Cup champion, unless Rick Hendrick fields an entry at the Indy 500 for him, knowing where the 500 falls in the calendar, meaning, you know, smack dab in the middle of the cup championship season. How would you let your champ biggest name guy who could go on to rip off three, four, five, ten championships in a row? How would you risk letting him run the 500 crash, break a leg, be out, be like, there's no upside to this at all. If and when he gets to a point where he's like, Rick, (laughs) I'm doing it, or I'm never driving for you again, I think that's when we see him, but not before then. Uh, Mark Graham, you're curious about the original number or total number of Honda and Chevy engines in circulation. Um, Pool size, I've heard, could be wrong, but pool size I've heard, and I heard this years ago, I assume it hasn't really changed, is somewhere between 50 and 60 engines. Um per brand so that's the number that i know uh tim peters could one chassis be used for both indycar and indy light since indycar is worried about lights cars at ims wouldn't one chassis for both reduce overall cost allow lights to run at ims um you also asked will the next chassis be too specialized for the new engines that it would be too difficult to install a lights engine and get car balance i think the latter part is a definite yes IndyCar in general is going to be big and beefy. This next one, right? Uh, the tub itself is going to weigh a lot. And it needs to because we're going to be talking 900 plus horsepower, 1,000 horsepower plus 
uh, before it's, that chassis is retired, that's a lot more than a smaller, lighter Indy Lights car making 500 horsepower. So, yeah. The idea of could we use a common chassis, I would say pre-aero screen, pre all kinds of extra anti-intrusion paneling and stuff that shot up the weight, I would say back years ago probably would have been a better option, Tim. Knowing that part of the Indy Lights, I shouldn't say part, a big part of Indy Lights performance is motor is small and light. The car, by comparison to an Indy car, is small and light. That's why it goes so fast. 500-ish horsepower, it's a great number. It's a really good number. If we're talking about going to an IndyCar chassis, I mean, to get any kind of performance out of it, that horsepower number is going to have to go way up to compensate for the weight, and then not too far from being an IndyCar. So why, again, I think this would have made better sense years ago, brother. I just don't know if it would now. Um... We're going to close with that. Uh, other than we're, we'll just let our man Ryan Terpstra uh, close the show by saying, let's revisit the not everyone gets participation points topic. I'll add drama to the race. Um, uh, it adds drama to the race and gives the broadcast more potential storylines. I vote for P15 being the cutoff for points. All right, discuss. For those of you who don't like that idea, please flame at TRC underscore Terpstra on Twitter. Uh, Ryan being one of the members of our Prude listener group. By the way, if you do like that, I really do fail to mention this up front as often as I should. We have a really cool thing with a group of listeners. I think it's 100 plus now, maybe, um, who've named themselves the Prude, modeled after my favorite WWE tag team wrestling group, the New Day. Um they have a private chat group. They bench race. They talk about life, the universe, and everything. I'm not part of it. Don't want to be. It's not meant for me. It's meant for them and you. But if that's something you want to join, like some of the folks there really, truly, really, truly are amazing. Sweet, caring, kind. A couple of dicks there too, I'm sure. But fun folks. Racers. Love IndyCar. Love IndyCar. Also love some other forms of racing. And... They gather and chat each day. Uh, could be about what they've read. Could be about the show. Could be about me and hopefully saying really funny, bad things about me. But if you have an interest in joining, reach out to me. Uh, whenever I make, whenever I think to say this, it's really cool to see the amount of people who do reach out via DM. Or if you go to marshallpruittpodcast.com, there's a little contact page. Just send me an email or Again, a DM if you can or want to, at Marshall Pruitt on the Twitters or the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. Let me know. I'll get you connected with some of the leaders there, some of the folks who do the induction, like Ryan Terpstra, John Wojnar, Matt Philpot, Chris Ward, Jeremiah, and uh, Sarah Morell, um, Cassie Johnston. Like, there's, you know, James Bethay. There, there's men, women, cats, dogs chaos the prude day um let me know reach out would love to have you join and uh just be part of things so i am me you are you i appreciate you my wife and i appreciate you thank you for all that you do for us with giving uh at least me this platform to do this on a weekly basis which is a little bit of therapy and fun and uh, just connecting with y'all 
and uh, helping to just create this remote virtual audio family. So thank you for listening. We'll be back here shortly with our man Devlin D. Francesco as our week in IndyCar guest. And I think I'm going to reach out to Rossi next week. Although I don't know if he's like doing Baja or whatever else, but if not, maybe Willie T. Ribs as a guest or something like that. Maybe Pato. If things work this weekend as planned, I'm actually meant to see our man Pato in Monterey. So anyways, lots more fun to come. Speak to you here soon.